0: everyone. Welcome to the Categorically Romance podcast. My name is Bree and my co-host today is my lovely friend Aaron. Hello.
1: Thanks for having me back again.
0: Thank you for being here. And we have special guest Steve Amadown is here. We are so excited. Steve, thank you for hanging out with us today. Share with us how twenty twenty two has started for you.
2: Well, thank you for having me. I'm in, I'm excited to be here. Twenty twenty two is off to a very cold start. Uh, we've I'm in Northwest Ohio, so we've had a lot of uh, sub twenty temperatures, and then the other day it was fifty degrees. So it's it's been a real roller coaster. Um, but yeah, so things are going well, and just trying to keep my head above water and keep it going. So,
1: well, do you want to get into some icebreakers, Steve? Sure, let's go ahead. All right, if you came with a warning label, what would it say?
2: Oh gosh, I was thinking about this, and uh, I think the the label would say uh, caution verbose. Okay. Because um, oh. once once I get going on on something I'm interested in or excited about, it it tends to go on for a while. Um, oh yeah, you know. My my wife is very good at editing me in this case, too. She'll just kind of look at me, and I'm like, I'm done. Okay, I'll stop. My bad.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs>
1: Well, that's all right because it works perfect for a podcast where we just it need does, we just yeah. need talking. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're glad to have you. So, what is the first song on the soundtrack to your life?
2: I the the only one that comes to mind is uh, there's a Canadian band uh, from the '90s called Sloan, and they had a song called Underwhelmed, and it's it's about uh, grammatical errors, and <laughs> and how they can kind of drive you crazy sometimes. And that always kind of kind of resonated with me on a on a nerd <laughs> level. Um, for better or worse.
0: Got it. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> I love it. So what was the first job you had? Ooh, um, let's see. So I would say the first job I had was probably as a paperboy. Um oh, this yeah. was you know, probably early 80s, I would have been 11 or 12 years old, and literally getting on my bicycle with a bag full of newspapers, like old school, uh, you know, throwing them at people's doors, that kind of thing. Um, It taught me a lot about uh, exercise, (laughs) because it was, you know, it was maybe a three or four mile route up and down hills. Mm -hmm. And uh, about uh, tipping, tipping is important when you're a paperboy, because you don't get paid a salary, you get sort of a, a percentage of the the tips that you get on a weekly and and monthly basis. So tell me about the importance of tipping. Yeah, Yeah. Talk
0: about a job that kids have no idea these days probably even existed.
2: It's a lot more rare because now you get, it's mostly grownups in station wagons. Uh, yeah. driving the the newspapers around. So throwing
0: yeah. it out the window, yeah. Yep. Oh yeah. man, talk about nostalgia. <laughs>
1: uh, just you know, physical newspapers too. Right, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. My hometown, the uh, the local newspaper moved from their big building that used to have the printing press and everything, and and now they're like in a little strip mall, uh-huh.
2: <laughs> you know, <laughs> place. That's yeah, that's a lot more common these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: All right. What is one of your favorite purchases you've treated yourself to recently?
2: So uh, it's it's not a tangible thing, but I did break down and pay for uh, a month of Peacock so that I could watch oh. the Olympics okay. uh, and, and and specifically curling. I'm I'm someone who has has done some curling in the past. Oh, really? Uh, I don't do it right now because of some injuries and and health issues. Uh, but it's very relaxing to just sit there and and listen to the the stones rumbling down the ice and, <laughs> you know uh enjoying that so to be able to watch that like two or three times a day it's it just was absolutely worth the 599 or whatever it was for a month so yeah
0: for a split second i thought you were going to say so you could watch the new jlo rom-com but yeah. <laughs> know, <laughs> just,
2: I'm, I'm not going to get into it i haven't watched it yet but I i'm not either. sure about that one i don't <laughs> even <either. not> sure <laughs>
0: And usually the cringier and cheesier, the better. But the more that I watch previews for this one, I'm like, this looks really kind of awful.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I might have to check it out, though, just just for the cringe. Oh, absolutely.
0: <laughs> You're the guinea pig. Tell us what you yeah, think. All right. Yeah,
1: yeah I'll, I'll be the canary <laughs> in the mine. Okay. <laughs> So we know from your Twitter bio that '80s television is one of your specialties. Share with us some of your favorites, if you will.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was, you know, I was, I was constantly planted in front of the TV as a kid, and uh, but we never had cable, so it was always like it was always the network sitcoms uh-huh. and shows. Um, one that I've actually gotten a little bit back into watching recently is Quantum Leap, oh, um, yeah. which was late '80s, early '90s. <laughs> Um, and it's such a brilliant show, and so well done. And uh for to to have Scott Bakula literally like playing a new character every week, yeah, I think I think we've kind of slept on how brilliant that was. <laughs> yeah. As, well, yeah, and it's yeah. just a concept, right? Like he's a br- literally a brand new person every week, but he's still himself at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really good. And and I also uh the other day I was flipping by an episode of Silver Spoons. Oh yeah. Um, which was uh, Ricky Schroeder um, Aaron Gray, and I can't remember the dad's name at the moment. Um, but that was one where like I always envied the house that Ricky Schroeder lived in because yeah. his dad owned a toy company. so he had like you know cars driving him around the house and like a train set and all these other things. Um, so like kind of the you know the slightly cheesier sitcoms, some of the uh, the hour long you know chips was always one uh, in the seventies and early eighties, uh, that I got into. Um, so yeah, those are, those are some of my favorites and, you know, I've noticed that they've, they've started going back to playing some of those reruns on mm-hmm. local TV. Um, so oh, it's okay. cool to, to be able to go back to those, you know, like I did as a kid with like shows from the sixties and seventies. Yeah. yeah. I
0: was thinking about this lately because, uh, I think it was, I think it was CBS. Somebody did a whole kind of docu-series on the history of the sitcom. Uh-huh. And because I was thinking for a while, I was like, I feel like we don't have sitcoms, but we do. The co- The comedy has just changed so much. So like, I don't watch them and think it's a sitcom. Uh-huh. But when I think of the 80s, I feel like the 80s television really gets overshadowed by 80s movies. Do you feel like that?
2: In a lot of ways I I think you're right. I think that um which is which is funny because we had like five channels. Mm-hmm. And and so everyone watched a lot of the same things, but I think yeah. that in terms of kind of the long term end of it, people got way more into the movies and you know the Brat Pack and 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 all of those those things oh, um, John, John Hughes. Hughes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh you know, I think that's had the longer term effect. A lot of the a lot of the older TV has not held up well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I was watching an episode of Magnum PI the other day and it did not hold up. It was <laughs> not, I won't even go into it. It just was not good. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'd
2: imagine going back and watching, a,
1: you know, old episodes of Miami Vice and just, you know, probably oh, yeah. r- cringing <laughs> yeah. all the way
2: through.
0: Well, it feels Absolutely. like older TV. Like Lucille, I Love Lucy is always going to be funny. Mm-hmm. I mean, it I, it's it seems like that older era for some reason did it right. I don't know if it's the, the comedy or whatever, or if we just love the people behind it. But yeah,
2: I think yeah, there's maybe something a little more universal in the yeah. in in some of those laughs. I know like my seven year old really loves I Love Lucy, mm-hmm. and I've tried to show her some of the eighties sitcoms, and she's like, nah, it's <laughs> not funny. <laughs> and she's yeah. a very very discerning connoisseur of what's funny. So I mm-hmm. I believe her. when she says yeah (laughs) yeah
1: but it's it's interesting because those older shows that you you had a lot more guidelines on what could Mm -hmm. be on television so it had to have this broader appeal when you get into the 80s you could you get those more targeted shows and be edgier i I guess which you know then come brings in all of that stuff that doesn't age well
2: (laughs) right yeah (laughs) And, the, and there's a lot more sort of of the moment pop culture that shows up in a lot of those 80s, mm-hmm. 80s sitcoms where that moment is gone. And yes. like you have to then explain why that was funny. And it's yeah. like, well, if you have to explain it, you've done it wrong. So. Yeah. <laughs> exactly.
0: We know in every episode, Lucy is still going to be a housewife. Okay. That's it. Exactly. That's <laughs> exactly. what it is. Yeah. So we we love to hear romance origin stories. So can you tell us how you became a romance reader?
2: Sure. So I, I kind of backed into it a little bit. Um I uh, got a job at Bowling Green State University in their pop culture library. And as part of the interview process, I, I went to campus and um, toured the library. And one of the things I noticed was thousands of romance novels. They were just everywhere. And so I was like, wow, that's really fascinating. And and so I got the job and then I, I went to my wife who's been reading romance for, for years and years and was like, I need to understand this better because this is going to be a part of my job. And so she pointed me at um, uh, Courtney Milan's Brothers Sinister series um, as as sort of a jumping off point. And so I read those and I read all of them in like, you know, a month and a half or something or two yeah. months. And, and I was in. I was not just as like someone who had to do it for work. I was like, oh, this is actually a lot of fun. Um, yeah. You know. I had grown up as a genre reader. I would, you know, I read a lot of mysteries and and science fiction and things. So mm-hmm. I was into that sort of format of sort of genre expectations. And so once I kind of got used to some of the expectations, I was like, "Oh, this is great!" And so I started reading more widely and getting into sort of different areas and trying to read, you know, some paranormals or. Uh, you know some categories and and things like that just to make sure that I understood all of it and and it's it's been a lot of fun you know 5 or 6 years later to to be uh to be kind of someone who considers himself a romance reader now
0: yeah yeah okay so this is so cool okay so when you wanted you're a new librarian when mm-hmm. you for pursuing like your degree and all of that for, for, to to be a librarian, were you aiming to be like a pop culture librarian? I did not know that was a thing.
2: (laughs) It's a, it's a rare thing to be sure. Um, you know, I, so I went back to school in my mid thirties, um, during sort of great recession. It was like 2009. I went back to school and, um, You know, I was lucky enough to be able to to go back full time because I didn't have a job because I got laid off. Um, So I got a a, actually got a a student position at the library at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County um, in their special collections um, because I had gone and done some archives research. I was like, this is really cool. And the librarian said, well, if you ever want a student position, let me know. And so, you know, that took about five seconds of thinking. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Um, So I got into their collections, which, um, you know, UMBC was a school that started in the late 1960s. Um, So they had a special collections that was a little different um, from sort of the, the old book stereotype that you think of yeah. when you think of sort of a, a university library uh, collection. Um, so they collected a lot of science fiction, a lot of comic books. Um, they have an enormous comic book collection, a lot of fanzines, things that were very much of that sort of late 60s moment. Um, so I started working with that stuff. So I literally like right off the bat as a librarian, I'm, I'm working, I'm cataloging comic books, like Mm -hmm. how, how much cooler can it get? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that was kind of like my introduction. And so when I got my undergrad degree, I went straight to library school afterwards um, and I wanted to work in archives and special collections. I was thinking that I'd want to work in an area that, that we sort of identify as records management, which is kind of government archives. So very dry, you know, government records and things. Um, but I said, you know, my wife asked me on on the day I graduated with my my library science degree, she was like, what do you want to do? I said, I want to work with pop culture collections. Yeah. And so a couple of years later, that job at Bowling Green came up and I was like, yeah, I'm in, I'm going to give it a shot. And, um, you know, I, I spent uh, the better part of five years there um, until December of last year. so it it's a really fascinating collection. I, I was very much spoiled to uh, to be able to deal with it on a daily basis. So yeah
0: okay, even nerdier question can you sure when you first entered into that position like what did those first what were you entering into like explain pop culture collections to us
2: Really, a pop culture collection is it's like any other library collection. It's just very focused on sort of what I would call kind of uh, mid to late twentieth century materials. Um, okay. So it was heavily focused on science fiction and mystery and romance and movies and television and things like that. Um, so it's sort of you know it's not about the literature end of it. It's more about kind of the you know, all of the elements of pop culture. So audience response and, um, production and, and all of those things. So it it kind of covers that, that end of it. And it, you know, that, that collection sort of dated back, it it was created in the sixties as most things relating to pop culture were. Um, and that collection sort of deliberately was 20th century focused. So Um, is it like
0: capturing a moment in a way? It's,
2: it's trying to capture a lot of moments. Okay. Um, for better or worse some of these collections get kind of out of hand because okay. you're just like you're trying to cover everything <laughs> yeah um, you know like yeah i mean you can kind of imagine what a what a collection of thousands of romance novels looks like right yes so, yes. so <laughs> you know multiply that by a few and then you're like oh this is kind of this overwhelming collection and it and it would include things like manuscripts um you know we had a collection of romantic times uh, their photo archive um as oh. part of our collections and so you know it was a real it really spanned the the gamut of of how pop culture was created so it's really it's focused on that it's not a lending collection you know it's something where researchers go to the physical wow. place oh. to, okay. to kind of sit with the things and it's yeah. not because they're valuable per se it's more like because they're they, they tend it tends to be rare that you can actually find these things yeah, yeah. okay um, so, so yeah, so being able to kind of look at all those things in one place, and it's, it's overwhelming, really, it's a, it's a lot of stuff. Yeah. And that's true of any pop culture collection, like they, mm-hmm. you just get lost in these kind of things. Um, you know, and, and you try to, it, it's all about trying to make sense of it, and yeah. get people to use it.
1: Now, you mentioned reading paranormal, Brie and I are big paranormal fans. So can, can you share with us <laughs> some of your favorite paranormals? Or or are you not a Paranormal fan?
2: I'm I'm not a regular Paranormal reader. Um, I've read some. Uh, one of the things I, I found was really fun was um, a lot of local RWA chapters will look for librarians mm-hmm. as judges for their contests. Oh. Um, so several times I signed up as a judge and specifically requested Paranormal because <laughs> I was curious <laughs> what was happening and what was going on. Uh-huh. Um so a lot of those were were very middle of the road. Mm-hmm. Um I just finished reading uh Cressley Cole's um No Rest for the Wicked. Oh, which is it. the, the second book. Yes. in that series. Um and that kind of blew my mind. That's like a whole other <laughs> a whole other thing. Um But yeah, so I you know, I'm I'm just not a big like werewolves and vampires person
0: (laughs) understand
2: (laughs) that's just not my thing um you know i find it interesting it's fun to read yeah Uh, but it's not like it's not the first thing i'll seek out usually okay Not that there's anything wrong with it, just, <laughs> right. just not my thing.
1: <laughs> we 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 our feelings aren't hurt over here. So.
0: <laughs> we hear it so, all the time.
1: Yeah, <laughs> right. So, can you share with us where your interest in recording romance fiction stems from?
2: So, in the position I was in at Bowling Green, I I was able to look at at romance over a, a longer stretch of time than most people do. Um, so I was able to sort of go back to like. Harlequin books of the 50s and and look at things in long runs and streaks of things. Um, and as someone who's my undergrad background is in uh, sociology and gender studies. So as, yeah. as someone who, with that background, I started uh-huh. to look at it from that lens yeah. of, um, you know, this was, you know, this was women, generally women writing for women. It was largely being published by men, um, you know, mm-hmm. and so it created this, it was this really interesting gender dynamic and then learning more about the history of the genre uh-huh. and learning about the history of RWA and the history of Harlequin. Um, I, I began to see things that I was not seeing in sort of the academic literature. Mm-hmm. Um, so I saw a real value in sharing that stuff and and talking about it more to kind of spark some interest among not only academics, but also just readers and authors. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think one of the things about uh, sort of romance history and things is the I've gotten a lot of engagement from sort of people who are way outside the academic sphere, um, and and yeah. whose interest is mostly as a fan of X author or X trope or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that's really interesting, and it, and it's sort of uh, you know it, it starts to feel like. Uh, it start. I, I feel like it's a way to backfill a gap in the yeah. record, um, and and a lot of this stuff just wasn't recorded at the time, or it was reported in one issue of Romantic Times forty five years ago. Uh-huh. And so, how do we, you know, how do we resurrect that? Yeah. Um, so, I think there's there's a lot there, and I saw it as as a, a unique way to to interact with both the public and the academic uh, end of things. And now I do it mostly because I'm just I'm fascinated by it. And I see a lot a lot there um, that connects to things like fan culture and um, publishing history and, and all of those things that that a lot of people just haven't haven't explored yet.
0: OK, I, I have so many nerdy questions. Okay. I'm gonna I mean, well,
2: I'm well, here for all of them. Bring okay, them okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well,
0: OK. Just one random one that I thought about last night that I wanted to ask you. So, And I don't know if this is anything that you've seen, you know, during doing the research or whatnot. But when it comes to category, and this is a question, this is a conversation Sarah and I have had a lot is, as readers, when it comes to category, stuff like numbers or um, cover changes, does it really matter? Not so much. But academically, does stuff like that matter?
2: I, it's a good question. I think that it matters in the sense that it's an on-ramp for academics to get into the topic. Um, you know, there there are, I think, thankfully, a lot more academics right now who are romance readers okay. who are studying romance. But I think, especially in the, the 70s and 80s harlequin romance was a a sort of cheap and easy way for academics to to take on romance and they they did it in not very nice ways frequently um but they they were looking at things like covers and numbers and and things like that um you know i think for for most academics now that that stuff is less important uh cover art still gets a lot of conversation and i think rightly so i you know, I think you can look at um, you can look at Harlequin over the years, whether it's temptation or romance or desire or whatever, and and trace those changes. And it's a really interesting um, look at the way in which the publisher is trying to meet the reader expectations, um, okay. but set them at the same time. So, like I, you know, like you were holding up desire, so I I have one right here. Oh yeah, and and these covers are just outstanding. Yes. Um, but it's a real evolution from the sort of uh, the painted covers of the '80s and '90s, mm-hmm. um, and so it's uh, you know, and so it's a way for for people to start talking about the romance, and then hopefully they're also looking at the content, not just the covers, um, because that that's I think a trap a lot of people fall into is they start to to analyze the cover art, but they're not looking at what's inside you know the the cover is an expectation created by the publisher more Mm -hmm. often than not but the content is the author's work and and what's Mm -hmm. you know that that's a whole different ball game in a lot of ways
0: one of the posts on your website romancehistory.com which is a rabbit hole worth going down? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's romance scholarship, scholarship and collections. Where we've come, where we can, where we've been, where we can go. Which you close out by writing. Romance fiction has tremendous research potential as literature, as a physical object, and as a social object. Can you talk about what inspired kind of the writing of this post? And I I think that it's a really interesting uh, post that makes you think of, I mean, we we buy the books, we read the books, and you don't really think of it uh, like outside of that. But reading that post, it's like, it, it really makes you think like there's more to this. There is a history that this belongs to so can you talk about that post a little bit
2: connecting back to the the work at Bowling green is being able to look at you know 10 years for example of harlequin presents um one after the other you you start to see things and and pick up on on trends and then you map it to well this was 1979 there was massive inflation starting to grow and there were all these concerns about x y and z um you know, I think that, that romance novels have a real place within uh, the, the kind of social uh, landscape of the second half of the 20th century. So, it, and in researching them, you start to get an idea of what, you know, especially in sort of the earlier years, what women's expectations were of relationships and, you know, how women were starting to, to see things like careers and, and things like mm-hmm. that. Um, you know, and, and in later years, you, you start to have more male writers, you start to have more, more queer stories come in that, mm-hmm. you know, again, it's, it's sort of reflecting society back to itself um, in a mass produced way, but in a really interesting way that I think can, um, can really unlock some things that, that we don't get from sort of kind of bare readings of history, right? Like, you know, what what right. someone was spending... Ten dollars a month to get six Harlequins. You know what their expectations were and what they were getting is, I think, a really interesting thing that that that's very much worthy of study. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I think you know it's it's something that that it is both of its time and it also shaped its time in a lot of ways. Um, so yeah, so that that's kind of what I was trying to get at. I think that that it's really important that we look at every aspect of popular culture. Um, and mm-hmm. so, you know, you couldn't, you can't, you wouldn't leave mysteries, you know, kind of on the table and say, oh, those don't matter. Um, yeah. Because they reflected a certain element of society. And and romance, like marriage and love and relationships, like it, it's an incredibly important part of our society. So why wouldn't we want to look at that as well?
0: Yeah. One of, like, I really love your post about men who wrote romance and how uh-huh. some of them like some of them mm-hmm. would own up to it eventually, or you're able to kind of piece the puzzle together. But then some of them are like, "Nope, it wasn't me." So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how did you yeah. like? How, how did those names kind of come across? Was that in your your research, like your research or your working? Like, how did you come up with those names in the first place? And be like, I need to look into this person.
2: Yeah. So in the in the like the '70s boom of historical romance, all these publishers started getting in the game, and they needed content. And there were only mm-hmm. so many writers, yeah. so there were these sort of—I call them mercenaries—but you know, there's probably a better term for it. Um, these these male authors who would write anything if it got them their their paycheck at the end of the month. Uh-huh. Um, so there were these authors like Tom Huff, like David Wind, um, who adopted female pseudonyms and, in many cases, became bestsellers. Um, you know, partially because of publisher support, but also they were talented writers who could who mm-hmm. could really spin a tale. Um, and so I I find it really interesting. And I you know it, it's a question that always comes up, like where are the men writing sort of straight romance stories? Well, they were there. Yeah. Um, but I think in the eighties, when there was sort of the when fan when the fan culture around romance started to grow a lot of those mercenary writers dropped off because they didn't want to engage with fans. They just wanted to write their they book just
0: wanted to, yeah. mm-hmm. and
2: get their yeah. paycheck. Um, Tom Huff is a great example of uh, someone who he, he loved engaging with his fans and he would show up at every romance conference um, And he, so he wrote under Jennifer Wilde was his main pseudonym, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and so, you know, he's someone who, who shows up again and again, um, as you know, he was uh, Catherine Falk, the publisher of Romantic Times. He was one of her favorite people. So, you know, she would show up in pictures with him all the time. Um, So I think it's really interesting, right? Like who, who does own up to it? And, and who's just like, no, that, no, you you must be mistaken. (laughs) It couldn't, couldn't possibly be me. Yeah. And, and what I found was uh, there was a book from, I want to say, 1983 called Love Lines, which is like this kind of coffee table book. I don't have it with me um, about romance novels and authors and things. And there's a whole chapter of men uh, in that book. And half of those men just completely have disavowed their romance, right? <laughs> so, like, I'm not trying to out people, but I think it's really mm-hmm. interesting that that sort of dichotomy of of who accepts their past and who like tried to ignore the fact that it existed, even if they admitted yeah. to it once upon a time. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, in the in the time of the '80s, there was sort of this, especially in Hollywood, there was a, a big kind of pushback against uh, the the sort of feminist wave like you had arnold schwarzenegger you know really coming into his stardom and everything so it must have been a difficult time as you know as just a male to even admit to yeah i I write romance books it it was probably i i I don't know that's just me making an assumption
2: well and and yeah i mean some of the some of those guys were very macho um you know they also wrote Sort of Soldier of Fortune books and you know <laughs> mystery novels and and things. So they thought themselves uh, to be very serious writers. Um, and romance, you know, especially then, was not held in high esteem within publishing uh-huh. or elsewhere. So they felt like they maybe felt like they had to to sort of tuck that under the rug and mm-hmm. say, no, that you know, I didn't really mean that. I was just doing it for the paycheck kind of thing.
1: Yeah. yeah.
2: And has, also, in some cases, they may have found they just weren't very good at it, that right? Too. Like yeah. They, they got in the contract and sold a bunch of books, but no one really liked the books. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah. you know.
0: So has there been, I mean, either male or female or what? You know, have has there been an author that you've come across for? category or just romance specifically that you're like i didn't know this person wrote like i I remember reading my first rosam rosamund pilcher last year and at the beginning of the book i learned she wrote for harlequin presents under a pseudonym Uh once upon a time and i'm like so many authors secretly wrote category that you may not have known about
2: yeah that's that's a good question um you know the first first name that always comes to mind is um Jane Ann Krentz uh, initially wrote for, I actually have one of them here, uh, wrote for Candlelight Ecstasy as Jane Castle um, and wrote a bunch of books for for Candlelight. Um, And of course, you know, has three or four other pseudonyms that she's used over the years. Um, but she is someone who who became really huge off of category, but you know is kind of in a very different league now. Is writing yeah. much longer books, much you know, much different subjects. Um, you know, Nora Roberts is always one that comes up as, as someone. Um, you know, I think I think it's really interesting to kind of yeah get your get your bearings with some of these people and see. Um, Kay Hooper mm-hmm. is someone who. Writes sort of uh, mystery and and suspense novels now, but started as a category writer. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of people who who cut their teeth, especially in the early to mid '80s. You know, romance was where the money was as an author. You know, every publisher had a line or five, and they yeah. they needed that content, yeah. so they would pay you know pay up front. Um, and, you know, at 40 or 50,000 words, they could crank it out and yeah. and not have to worry about it. So uh-huh.
0: I'm still shocked when I think about like Debbie Maycomber started out writing uh-huh. category romance. <laughs> she, Debbie yeah, May she,
2: she was one of the earliest uh, silhouette writers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, yeah, the, all those names kind of pop up now and again. Um, Heather Graham. You know, oh, yeah. writing as Shannon Drake and and some of those those names that pop up. Fascinating.
1: How would you define category romance to someone that's unfamiliar with it?
2: So I think you know most people when they think about category romance, they think about length. Um, <laughs> So you're in that sort of 40 to 60,000 word frame there. You know, obviously there are ones that go longer, mm-hmm. um, but it's kind of that 175 to 200 pages. Um, they tend to be uh, they tend to be written on trend. I always think of it that or at least that's how I think about it. Yeah. They're written sort of according to things that are going on in the world um, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways or things that readers expect because again you know if you're a harlequin especially in the 80s you're sending out six a month you've got to like make sure that people read them and keep their subscription going yeah um, so yeah, so that, that's sort of, those are the things I think about, you know, now with Harlequin, um, titles, you, you get in the title exactly what you're going to get in the book, yeah. which is, I think a really interesting development, um, that started in kind of the nineties, mm-hmm. especially with secret baby books um yeah yeah, and and when it was going to be a secret baby book there was always secret baby in the title Uh um, because they knew there were some feelings around those um now you just
0: probably see a pregnant heroine on the cover
2: right exactly yeah Yeah. and it's you know his you know his pregnant princess secret baby (laughs) Mm -hmm. or something you know something like that that's very descriptive um that that sort of is is not maybe as artful as old titles would have been, but it's it's certainly there's an expectation of what the reader is going to get, and they're going to get it. Um, you know, they're usually written according to a tip sheet. Um, I don't know if that's changed. I know that was certainly the case in the '80s and '90s, um, where the publisher would have kind of a list. This is mm-hmm. you know this is how long we want it to be. This is when we want the first kiss to happen. You know, this is, you know, there is no this, this, or this. There is this, this, and this. Um, okay. So they, they're not formulaic in the way that I think some people think they are, but uh-huh. they also tend to seem, they tend to, to go along similar arcs. Uh-huh. You know, the books uh-huh. are all carry along cer- certain arcs. There's always a dark moment. There's always, you know, mm-hmm. a, a reconciliation um, you know that kind of thing. So that that's how I usually think about categories.
0: This is a conversation that Sarah and I have a lot because when we started the, the podcast, Harlequin was it category wise right. for us. That's what we knew. And as we were doing more interviews, even you know the authors we were like we were speaking with were like, you need to look at Thule, you need to look at Entangled, and so we started, you know, reading, we realized a lot of these books we had read and we didn't know that they were category. And so we have this conversation, a lot of like definitions of things like, because this is what a definition online says is category romance. And here's this specific publisher that kind of does that to the T you get so many books a month, they are numbered on the spine, depending on the line, there are some that don't, Um, you know, they it fits it to the T does that mindset of this is the way we've always done it. So this is the correct way. Is that kind of where we're falling into versus these other publishing houses where it's not necessarily, you're not buying it for the line, you're buying it more for the author name. Mm -hmm. Does that, I I, it's just, I think it's this conversation of like, is category changing? Is category romance something that can really change? Or Mm -hmm. is it the definition is out there and this specific house has figured out the formula to make it work and this is just something that's claiming to do the thing does that make I mean, sense
2: yeah i think i think the the definition hmm, the definition has changed but not not in a dramatic way okay um you know i think that once ebooks became popular and harlequin was an early adopter of ebooks um you know it became a little looser it wasn't you know it wasn't as reliant on those six books bu- six books a month but they kept that structure and and other companies have kind of followed that structure um you know since the 70s really you know harlequin kind of adopted its what we understand as a category structure really in this in the early 70s with building a subscription list and then uh, you know creating that sort of subscription six book a month model where people just it just came to your door and it's so convenient and you don't have to go to the store mm-hmm. and then you know Harlequin was an early sort of uh, uh, you know data harvester in a lot of ways because then they could they also had your name on a subscription list that <laughs> they could sell to another company um, <laughs> And that was very successful. so everybody kind of copied that. Uh, whether it was Dell or Berkeley or um, you know there's uh, there's a publisher who was around for a brief time in the early 90s. Uh, it was um, the name of the line was Metro Okay. Um, it, and it was it was a very short-lived thing, but it was created by a company that sold um, hosiery through the mail. Okay. So they've sold like <laughs> pantyhose and and stockings through the mail. <laughs> But they also, but they also created a publishing company,
0: <laughs> as you do.
2: <laughs> that ran on the same model because they were like, "Well, we already do this. Why not just do this and what as well?" And in fact, um, Suzanne Brockman, her first book, Future Perfect, uh, was with that company, and it was the very last book that company uh, published before it collapsed
0: first and last no oh, okay
2: it was her first okay, their last okay. um, you know so it's this really there's this really interesting history of these companies saying oh this is an easy way to make a dollar and then discovering it wasn't quite that easy okay okay
0: so for the library with a lot of romance being digital first now does that mm-hmm. change anything for you all
2: Ooh. um it's it's a lot harder to collect digital books, um, especially because the publishers don't want you to collect digital books. Okay. So as as librarians, it's it's a lot more difficult uh, to to look at that in a in a long term way. Um, you know, when I when I was at Bowling Green, that was that was it was just something we didn't talk about. <laughs> we just sort of <laughs> said we're gonna stick with with paper, and you know that'll that'll come along later. Um, which you know, in the end, from a from a academic standpoint, that early stuff is the stuff that that was kind of largely ignored within the pop culture sphere. Um, so, in some ways, that's kind of more important. Okay. Um, from a from an academic standpoint, the the newer stuff still needs to be collected somehow, but the, I I don't know that anyone has really figured out a good way to do how it. to do it. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Because they're sold, you know, to a specific username. So, right. you know, is does the library have to have a, a username that all of that goes to and that's right. yeah. So and and then the, yeah, the, the publishers word? don't <laughs>
2: really have a vested interest mm-hmm. in in preserving them long term because they they wanna be able to once they have it in ebook, they just wanna put it on their backlist and price it at ninety nine cents forever and ever. So mm-hmm. they they don't they don't it doesn't get remaindered like it used to or or pulped at the end of the end of the month, it just sort of moves from the front to the back. Uh-huh. Now, you were talking about
1: the titles telling you what's in the name of the book or what's what's in the book, what kind of story you're going to get. And that's interesting right. because I have an old Charlotte Lamb Presents that's just called for adults only. And and I hadn't even thought about it. I'm just like, I have no idea what this is about. Why why, why, why do I even crack this?
2: Yeah, absolutely. There's, um, oh, I forget who the author was, but there's one like Video Vixen. Uh What's that telling me? I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, the one thing I will say that this uh, Jane Castle, her first book was called gentle pirate and it oh. does feature the male main character uh, does have a hook for a hand. Um, so he's actually, he's one of the first disabled characters I've ever run into in a contemporary. Yeah. but that That is one where like, okay, you now I understand uh ah, pirate. I get what you were going for. <laughs> yeah. here. Um, but it was much more, much more artful. They would, they would also frequently get based on pop culture references. Oh, okay. Um, you know, I, I, could, I could see a book being called like An Officer and a Gentleman or something. Yeah. You know, like it, yeah. it would be like some pull on, on a popular movie or a popular book, you know, popular TV show title or something.
0: Oh, like we read uh, yeah. uh, "Natural Blonde Instinct" by Jill Shalvis, and that felt very legally yeah. blonde.
2: Sure. <laughs> it came out like yeah. two years
0: later. So,
2: <laughs> absolutely, yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, and and I have a couple of like the. So this is uh, I have uh, Eva Rutland um, wrote for Harlequin Regency. Okay. In the early nineties, uh-huh. and one of my favorites of hers is called "The Willful Lady." Okay, and and you can tell that the lady is willful because she's a redhead in the story. Um, but this cover also features a brightly colored parrot, and like the male <laughs> main character is falling down. Um, it's it's like it's one of those covers that just has all this motion in it. Yeah, um, but like the title tells you very little except that there is a lady and she's uh-huh. willful. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it, it's a very different. It's a very different model, but it again goes to that sort of um, reader expectation and what what the reader expects to find in a book. And I think it's just gotten to that kind of, uh, it's not clickbait, but it's it's kind of in that league of... Uh I know now exactly what's in this yeah. book, and it is my it is my trope. So I'm going for it.
0: They just fuel so, the the mood readers out there. Like, yeah, absolutely. You know, if you don't, if you're not in the mood for a secret baby, snowbound, and a princess, right. then don't yeah. pick this.
1: up.
2: <laughs> right. Yeah, and and I think that's the thing about category is it's always been more science than art in a lot of ways. Is that it, it was created to sell books, but the book wasn't as important as the package. Um, And this was certainly true for Harlequin where they were more focused on having a nice cover, you know, having a nice size for the book. So it could fit in a, in a purse or, or whatever. Um, And then they were really concerned about what the, what the inner contents were. So that that's always been sort of the push pull of category is you know, you were kind of in, in a lot of a lot of times in the early 80s, you're kind of lucky if you got a really good book out of it. Mm-hmm. What was more important was that you got six books. You got the six you know, books. Uh-huh. They were going for volume. Yeah. Um, you know, you had there were examples like uh, Nora Roberts first book, Irish Thoroughbred, is one of the few categories I have I've uncovered that actually had multiple printings
0: okay. in uh-huh. its
2: original package. So it wasn't that it got reformatted for some new line. It was just, it had so much demand. They just kept printing it um, over the course of like four or five years. So that was really unusual at the, at that time. That was, Uh that was kind of how they knew Nora Roberts was the superstar was people really (laughs) wanted that first book again. And didn't
0: she hear a no from like somebody else? And I'm like, who was the editor that said no to Nora Roberts?
2: (laughs) That, that is the classic story is um, there were all these American writers in the late 70s who decided they wanted to write for Mills and Boone, which, you know, Mills and Boone is the UK version. Harlequin is the, the Canadian version. Um, and so they submitted their manuscripts and they were all told. Um, Jane Ann Krentz tells the story as well a couple others that I've heard, um, that they already had their American writer. They Janet had Jane Bailey. So that's all they needed. Um, Is she the so- like,
0: 50 states writer? Yes. Okay, okay.
2: Yeah. Um, so she started writing for Mills and Boone in 76. I wrote a whole blog post about this. I can't remember the details. So. You did,
0: <laughs> and I thought about because I was sent a book, a new book by her it had to be like two years ago and i'm just Ugh. all excited like oh i read my first janet Daly, and then i learned like janet daly has been gone from us for a while now and i'm like yeah okay maybe they just <laughs> reprinted it but like a family <laughs> member of hers like tweeted at me it was weird <laughs>
2: it's, brand new books written okay. by somebody else
0: okay okay. Um, okay
2: no one knows for certain who the ghostwriter is Okay. Um, the family will not share that name. They just will. They just say that it's someone who was trained by Janet Daly. Got
1: it. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> they, conspiracy theory time.
2: I will leave the conspiracy theories <laughs> out of this. But she out? was
0: I'm the one trouble? American writer for a while.
2: She was. Um, she wrote, um, and it's interesting because she wrote. I I want to say eight titles. For Mills and Boone in the UK before they even brought her to North America. Yeah. Um, so yeah she was she was their American writer and so when Simon and Schuster created a silhouette mm-hmm. they snapped up all the American writers who had been rejected. By Harlequin, okay, and that's how they ended up with Nora Roberts and Debbie Macomber and and some of these other ones, um, and they they just went gangbusters. And eventually, uh, Janet Daly moved to Silhouette as well. So
0: look at that, come in yeah. full circle. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, do you have a favorite post of yours that you've written? Because I could just go on and on. There's one in particular that I love. Um, <laughs> And that is your Native American post.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. That was fascinating.
0: When I first started reading romance, we had a a small used bookshop here. Mm -hmm. It had a huge romance section. And there was always two boxes on the floor of nothing but Native American romances that they were selling for like 25 cents. And this is like 2017. So not that long ago. Um, But reading that post of yours, I was like, oh, I need to get rid of these. (laughs) (laughs) i just was buying a like uh janelle janelle taylor i think like janelle taylor
2: yeah yeah i mean that that one i think is really interesting because it's kind of you know uh for a long time it was an acceptable form of racism for romance novels because people thought oh they're well researched and you know all of these things um and and yet they they weren't they were based on you know they were based on stereotypes and you know even even a seemingly positive stereotype is still a stereotype yeah Mm -hmm. um and the fact that you know a lot of these books uh were still being republished until fairly recently there are still new ones that pop up every once in a while um you know it's kind of this this wild thing and i feel like for a lot of readers, um, because they're books that were published 20, 30 years ago, or they're now sort of over in inspirational um, categories or inspirational publishers, they sort of fly under the radar for a lot of people. And I think that, you know, I'm not trying to call people out, but I wanted to sort Mm -hmm. of say, hey, like, maybe we should think about this. You know, is this is this you know who this community wants to be? Um, and then with what happened last year with the uh, the RWA awards, where this this book that was the sort of revisionist history of Wounded Knee mm-hmm. uh, wins an inspirational award, everyone's like, wait a minute. Yeah. And, yeah. and so you know, I wrote an article for for Library Journal about that as well, um, where it's kind of like. This isn't the first time. Like, isn't this isn't new. Not new. <laughs> yeah. This is not new at all. Um, we've just forgotten about it. Um, so yeah. So I, you know, I think for my blog, I I tend to really enjoy the author focused posts um, that I do. Um, I did one for. There's an author named Ruby Saunders um, who was a magazine editor and somehow ended up writing four nurse romances in the 1960s. Um, And was, as far as I know, the only black author to write nurse romances during that time. Hmm. Um, You know, just sort of nudging some of these people to the top of the pile, so that so that people can kind of look and go, oh, you know, there's there's a longer history of these things than I think, Uh, because there's really like I the more I study, the more I realize like there's nothing new under the sun in romance. Like it's all been done. It's just in different Hmm. ways, and and we kind of. You know, generations of readers turn over and people forget, you know, for yeah. one reason or another, why a thing happened. And then it happens again. And I was like, oh man, this has never happened before. It was like, well, <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Um, you know, like plagiarism scandals go back decades and you know there's there's always there's whatever you whenever you see a thing come up it it has definitely happened before. Yeah um, I think so that's those one are of the ones
0: posts you did too. You had a, a post because Aaron and I both follow like the Write for Harlequin website and on Facebook. And uh-huh. you see aspiring writers every day. And I was looking at you have the post it was like if you're a writer, these are things that you should keep. And that one of the things that you mentioned is like, basically you're writing because plagiarism stuff pops up all the time still. And I'm like, damn, you don't really think about, you know, you think I wrote the book, maybe save it on the computer. Don't think about it, but you really Mm -hmm. should be holding on to like the most tiny of details because you just never know what's going to happen.
2: Yeah. That, that post, I did that for uh, American archives month. And, and it was focused on, you know, what as an author you should keep for your archives. So, you know, not everyone's going to end up in an academic archives or whatever, but like you, you have created work that you have sold for money. You should hang on to that, right? Like you should hang on to all the pieces of that so that, you know, if you get the rights back or if someone steals it, right? Like you have yeah. evidence that I created this, yeah. Um, you know, or like you know, scenes that you deleted that you might want to put on your Patreon or whatever, um, you know, little things like that. I I think people don't really think about, uh, you know, keeping that work product and, and really saving it for posterity, right? Like, even if you only write one book, you know, you, you might want your grandkids or your great grandkids to know you wrote it. Yeah. So you keep that evidence so that, you know, you leave your mark, you, you've sort of said, I was here, I did this thing, even if I'm not super proud of it because it wasn't a great book or whatever, I still did it. And, yeah. and it was important that, yeah. you know, that people understand that you wanna keep this stuff long-term.
1: So one of my favorites that are actually at the top of your list, it's about the Harlequin mangas, which I actually have, holding on to Alex here, I found it at a library sale, but-
2: <laughs> Nice, I, nice. I thought
1: it was really fascinating that, that these were translated into Japanese and then retranslated back <laughs> English. into English. Once they realized the American market was was you know interested in them and that it was the the same the same person that did the translations both ways, was that did I catch that right or uh,
2: not quite? So, okay. so what happened was. Uh, Harlequin moved into the Japanese market in the late '70s, early '80s, mm-hmm. and what they quickly learned was Japanese readers didn't necessarily want a fully American story. Mm-hmm. So they would have they had like basically a room full of translators who would take the book and translate sort of cultural things or um, yeah. you know phrases, things that that were out of place um, for the Japanese market. Years later. They started this manga series in Japan where they would take that translated book and translate mm-hmm. it into a manga format uh-huh. and then and then like you said, it came back to America, but it was <laughs> the translated <laughs> version of the translated manga yeah. that came back. <laughs> and and so for those six Dark Horse stories um, that that you're talking about, they were all translated into English by the same person Mm -hmm. so there were at least there was the original writer there were the japanese translators Uh there was the person who adapted it for manga and then there's a person who translated it back to english in the manga so there's at least four authors and so it's a really interesting story about (laughs) translation Um, and it's kind of random that, you know, I happened upon them in, in the Bowling Green collection. Uh And and when I left Bowling Green, it was one of the first things I was like, I need to buy these for myself. So I managed to, I like found all six of these original titles. Um, but of course, Harlequin kept doing manga after Mm -hmm. that. Now it's, now it's all digital for the most part. Um, but it's an interesting story of like authors kind of losing control of their work. right? Right. Like they... You know, once you've written the book for Harlequin, you've kind of given it up, right? Like uh-huh. it's now open for interpretation. Um, so it's a really interesting story and it's very, it's very complicated to tell. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I just found that really fascinating as, as, and as someone who sort of has always been a comic book person as well. It's kind mm-hmm. of like, oh, okay, this is, this is, you know, combines a number of things in my interest area. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. It's a real neat piece of history too. Yeah, absolutely. My first time
0: seeing one, you guys, I thought it was a scam. <laughs> I was like, Harlequin doesn't do manga? Yeah.
1: <laughs> what
0: is this?
1: <laughs> well, yeah, and uh, this these Violet ones, I guess you, you said they were uh, originally Harlequin Presents. So there is right. like it's they have some it's not quite on page, you know, lovemaking or, right. or steamy scenes, but it comes close. So yeah. it's, it's pretty, yeah, the, pretty interesting.
2: The- those are marked as only for above 18 or something something uh-huh. like that. And, and then with those, the, the other thing is the, uh, the ink. So the yeah. booklet ones were printed in purple ink mm-hmm. and the pink ones are printed in pink ink. And the pink <laughs> is nearly impossible to read. Yeah. You can't, you like, your eyes start to go funny and you're like, what is what is going on?
0: I think on your post you're like, the pink ones are like a headache to read or they give yeah. you a headache. Really?
2: Like, I can, I can read a couple of pages and then yes. I'm done. <laughs> um, yeah, so they're, they're a really interesting story.
0: So when you think about research potential with a specific Mm -hmm. focus on category romance, which has such a quick turnout of books, are there any topics of interest that you'd be interested in seeing researched based on where category is today?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think like we talked about the covers, I think that's always a really interesting one. I think the shift to photorealistic covers, um, which happened sort of in the late 90s, early 2000s. is is interesting, and you know, I think there there are sometimes these discussions about, especially with like Harlequin intrigue, um, like guns appearing on covers, and you mm-hmm. know, there's a lot there uh, that I think is is really interesting. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot to be done in terms of sort of, uh, and this is not my field, so I don't I don't remember all the exact terminology, but sort of textual analysis of of looking at you know, how certain words appear in texts and how tropes and, and different, uh, different concepts sort of appear over time. So I think that's really interesting. I think there's, I think there's a lot there. And I think um, looking at some of these authors over time, um, looking at someone like Jane Ann Krentz, or Nora Roberts, or, you know, outside of category, but like someone like Susan Elizabeth Phillips, who's had, you know, a 30, 40 year career, um, that's exceedingly rare in any area of fiction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but sort of looking at at how they evolve as writers and, and how certain themes kind of reappear in their work. Um, and I think category is, is one of those things where it's so much fun to read because it's so like, it is plot packed, right? Like yeah. you, you've got, you've got so many pages, you've got to get through it. Yeah. Uh, So there's a lot there, and and I think there's a lot to to sort of look at in terms of uh, sort of economy of language and and economy of of tropes and and words and things. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Well, one thing you mentioned earlier is just kind of like the idea of trends. Mm -hmm. and I'm just a nerd about the lines that have come and gone and looking at it from the standpoint of like was this a trend that was no longer blaze is a a beloved series here on the Mm -hmm. podcast I still feel like blaze would work today but apparently if, if you're looking at it from a trend standpoint would it still be popular today I don't know but I think that that's something that I personally would like to see somebody delve into if it if it's possible, but I, I also think that's a sales money numbers thing that we would never be mm-hmm. privy to.
2: Yeah, and I think that um, you know with something like Blaze or Kamani, um, the, these sort of lines that were very popular in their moment and then were just sort of cut off. Like I think it would be interesting to look at how um, things that that used to appear in Blaze maybe were integrated into a desire book or or mm-hmm. something like that. Um, or Kamani, like looking at how many Black authors actually were were brought over to other countries. Right, kinds. right. Because yeah. that was the promise that Harlequin made was we're doing this, but we're doing it so we can do this. Like, I, I think it would be interesting to look at some of those things um, and to talk to some of the authors who have maybe ridden out some of those changes mm-hmm. and see how they feel like those things have changed over time. I think um, I think oral history is a really important part of romance history, um, which is why I think you know podcasts like what you guys are doing, um, or Black Romance podcast, or even uh, Smart Bitches uh, Trashy podcast um, or Trashy books. Uh, you know, you're sort of preserving these moments in time. So you're talking. I mean, you guys talk to category authors that don't get on other podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know mm-hmm. and and vice versa with a lot of other things. so I think that that um, you know these podcasts also become a, a really interesting research area as well in in sort of what gets talked about and who who gets to appear um, and and how in some cases it's the only place some of this some of these stories are told and I think yeah. that's that's really interesting and important and something that that I've kind of tried to push on people like, you know, you should really look at this podcast over, you know, a hundred episodes and see how that's changed and see, you know, who got to appear and, and who didn't.
0: Yeah. yeah. So before we get off of here, do you have any favorite either category or romance reads that you've read recently that you'd like to shout out or recommend?
2: Yeah. So uh, that Eva Rutland book I mentioned, The Willful Lady, um, which is not in print or an ebook. Okay. Um, but it is available on on eBay and your your uh, your finer online book retailers. It's a lot of fun to read, and there is a parrot and the parrot is important (laughs) which i think is always right like when an animal appears is it going to be important yeah yeah Um, and it is uh and and the other one and and this i think i heard jane ann krentz say that she is trying to bring back a lot of her old candlelight books as ebooks um but gentle pirate is just an absolute bonkers ride of a book um it's like there's, there's a suspense element, there's danger, there's some really outdated notions of masculinity. There, there's a lot going on there. Um, yeah. And it's one of those books where from one page to the next, you're not sure what's going to happen. Like I, I read the whole book and I'm like, I did not realize, I didn't see that coming. Yeah. That, that was not, God. that was not what I expected. Um, you know, I've also, as I said, I, I enjoy Reese Ryan as a, as a Harlequin desire author, I think she's really writing some interesting stuff. And um, you know, that, that whole area, I think, you know, I, I tend to dip in and out of category, right? Like it's, Mm -hmm. it's a good sort of revival type of thing. When you're like, I'm in a reading slump, you can grab a category of Mm -hmm. some description and you're just going to get like 175 pages of just joy like, right. Like you're just, you're going to go on a ride and it's fun. So I, yeah, I just kind of snap them up now and again. And, and, and it's, it's a, it's always a fun read. So
0: So we basically need to read the Eva Rutland together and come back and talk about it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a fun book, and and Eva Rutland is a really interesting lady. I've written about her in a few different places. Um, you know, she was a black woman who was blind and also uh, lost her voice, most of her voice, um, to a, a a childhood illness. <laughs> um, but she became a, an incredibly popular author of Regency Romance. And, you know, she's a really fascinating lady. Um, But she also is a a good writer. Like this is uh, the, the willful lady is, I think, her third or fourth. Uh, Regency and and you can tell like it's you know it's snappy, it's funny, it's hilarious in in points. Um, yeah, I think anyone who enjoys Regency would would like that.
0: Lastly, where can everybody follow you online?
2: Sure so uh, my blog is romancehistory.com. It is uh, currently infrequently updated but'm I'm, I'm working on some things for that um and you can find me on twitter at stegan s-t-e-g-a-n
0: you are a must follow on twitter just saying thank (laughs) you (laughs) aaron where can everybody follow you
1: uh you can find me on youtube at aaron's reading room and then on twitter i am a underscore t-a-y one two two zero and then you can find me as the book brood adventures on instagram got it
0: well Everybody's links will be listed down below. Steve, thank you so much for coming on and talking with us today. We've been so excited. Um, Thank you for having me. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, And listeners, we will be back in our next episode. Have a lovely day, everybody. Thank you for listening.